Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Series 2 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me, hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and I write the Ask Annalisa column in The Guardian each Saturday. Every week, when researching the column, I get to speak to some amazing specialists. And this podcast allows me to go into more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this podcast, so if you'd like to support us so that we can make more, you can share it widely. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can follow the link in the description of this episode, which will take you to the ACAST supporter page. And if you'd like to listen ad-free, head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri, where you can become a supporter. I can't pretend I get lots of letters about how to get a baby to sleep sent into my column, but it's a subject that's very close to my heart because when I had my first baby, there was so much I didn't know and I wish I had known. And when you have a baby, all everyone seems to talk about is, do they sleep through the night? There is so much misinformation about babies and their sleep, often leading to parents feeling guilty, wretched and sleep deprived. And I was so lucky quite early on in my mothering journey to meet a group of amazing women online who share the collective wisdom with me. I can't remember when I first met my guest in today's conversation, Professor James McKenna, but over the years, he's the person I have gone to when anything to do with baby or children and their sleep has come up in my Guardian column. Jim is a biological anthropologist. He pioneered the first behavioural and electrophysiological study documenting the differences between mothers and infants sleeping together and apart and is a world expert on infant sleep. He's been studying it for more than 40 years. He's Emeritus Professor at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, the director of the Mother Baby Behavioural Sleep Laboratory there, and he's also now the Dean's Executive Professor at Santa Clara University. Jim's published over 150 articles and six books on the subject of infant sleep. He often gently challenges me to look at what I think I know about baby sleep in a completely different way. I've been chasing Jim around the world to get him to talk to me on this podcast and I'm totally psyched that I finally managed to rugby tackle him to the ground. Jim joins us from San Francisco. Jim, hello. It's really great to talk to you again. Now, one of the first things that you ever taught me was that babies don't have the same sleep cycles that adults do, which I found really amazing because no one had ever told me that. Can you explain how they differ? Well, one of the questions that everybody asks, and it's very pertinent to parents' expectations, is, you know, why is it that babies, however it differs, why is it that they're born with such very different sleep cycles? Well, first of all, their brain birth is so neurologically immature, neurologically the least mature infant of all. Our brains as uh, human beings is only 25% of its eventual adult volume, which means the human infant is almost like a little different species than a normative human. They don't talk, they don't walk, they don't control their bowels, their systems, their breathing, their heart rate, their hormonal cycles. Everything is different. They are immature little creature whose identity is only uh, possible and valid by virtue of the habitat that all human babies are supposed to inhabit. You'll never guess what that is. The habitat is the mother's body. So dependent physiologically is 
the human infant on the sensory signals and heat and smells and movement of the caregiver, the primary caregiver, the mother. The actual analytical frame of study has to be the mother and the infant. Unlike other mammals and other primates, they can't cling to their mother's ventrums at all. Their motor control is not developed. Their digestive system is not developed. Their immune system is not developed. And all these other things we generally associate with humans, as I just mentioned previously, talking and walking, is far from being developed. So we go back to the question is, what is human infant sleep normally, biologically, and why is it so different? And it's primarily related to the lack of interconnections between the what we call the lower brain, kind of your reptilian part of your brain, and what eventually the baby will have, and that is cognition through the development and interconnections with the lower brain. The higher brain will interrelate, and the baby begins to get what's called cognition. That is to say, evaluation and judgment and knowledge and learning and using experience to modify its behavior. But in the beginning, which is a starting point for understanding everything about babies, every system of the baby is being regulated by the mother's body. And so I was trying to stress that one of the ways we got off the wrong track and thought that, oh, babies should just kind of sleep, you know, like we do as adults. Well, their brain is just so immature. They can't do that. It's just impossible for them to sleep. And they go into what's called, when we're dreaming, it's called rapid eye movement, this stage of sleep of which there are five, stage one, two, three, four, and then this very strange, almost awake sleep stage called REM, rapid eye movement. And that's what happens when people dream, actually. You see your eyes are actually following the actions in your dream, if you can believe it. They're going back and forth, and you're dreaming. Now, we all have REM sleep, but babies do a heck of a lot of it. And it's not a real organized system of sleep. Babies don't have those distinctive sleep stages yet. And if you look at babies biologically, what is the major activity these babies will actually do to keep alive? Well, one, they don't know where they're going, but they're seeking out their mother's body, the way it feels. Keep in mind, this is, this, our babies are like a gene machine. The genes are directly finding expression. It's all instinct. It's not learning. The baby doesn't know even where it's going when it's fishing around, its arms are moving, its legs, but they will automatically, instinctually crawl up a mother's ventrum to get to the breast without knowing where they're going. But that's their genes finding expression. That's what babies do. The first year of life for a baby is to get food and to feel warmth and to be regulated by its mother's body. And particularly that first year or two, the baby's brain doubles in size. So that's why we always say, scientists, that those first two years of experience really are shaping the architecture, the structure of a brain. The mother and the baby, and we're not used to thinking this way. We democratic-oriented people, the individual's the one. Yeah, get that baby on the road, we think. You know, get them independent as soon as we can. Ah, oh, yeah, that sounds really great. But the problem is, that the baby's biology is not going to quite cooperate with that cultural idea, that idea of what babies should be like. Because they have about three million years of evolution and biology behind them, and it's worked pretty darn well. In recent times, in the realm of how long human babies have been along, oh my gosh, it's just a blink in time. And that brain isn't going to change to accommodate what somebody sitting on stools might think would be a great way for babies to sleep. Someone might actually even think, hey, yeah, let's get these babies going on their own. Hey, for four months, yeah, that baby should be on its own. Get that baby in a room. Get that baby in a crib. Well, therein becomes the problem. Culture versus biology. And this is what I always say is, Western industrialized people are the most educated, the most organized, in a sense, they have the greatest expectations of what they want and why they want it, but they are the parents in the world that are the most disappointed and have the most difficulties with what they say is getting their baby to sleep. 
in practical terms, the fact that the baby has different sleep cycles, mm -hmm. am I correct in saying it means that it wakes more frequently? I mean, oh, really yes. simply. And that's a survival instinct because obviously, yes, you, you know, as you said, it's the blink of an eye, the evolution. And if we were still sort of out living in the outside world, a baby that sleeps through the night and doesn't check in with where exactly. its mother is, its father, its, its family could get eaten. <laughs> so it needs to constantly yeah, yeah. check in. Absolutely, Elise. You, you said it more eloquently than I could. Baby's job is to wake and feed. Their body is designed, even whether or not they get breast milk or not, because you know here's another cultural mismatch between what babies expect, potentially, and what they get. But breast milk, you know, is very calorie light. And what do babies do? They have these tiny, when they're born, cherry-like stomachs. Imagine it. But they need to fill that stomach up as much as they can. And the baby's job and its biology is all about waking to feed to breastfeed. Now, you know there's something called formula and cow's milk and something called bottles. But in the biological development of human babies, those things weren't there at all. In fact, those are all just recent historical developments, even going back, let's say, 5,000 years to when we began to, as humans, getting pretty darn smart, domesticating plants and animals that we could live on. Even going back then is nothing in terms of the biological adaptations of human babies. It didn't take humans long, clever as they are, to figure out, hmm, we could use another species milk to feed our babies, and then, then moms wouldn't have to do it. And that's true. But what we're finding now in the last, you know, 25 years is there is nothing that is comparable to what human breast milk does for this especially slow, incredibly slow developing little person. And that breast milk and the way the baby gets it and the way the baby feeds is a package deal. Think of this. It's not only that breast milk does everything a human infant body needs in exactly the right amount with exactly the right immunities going into the baby to protect it, but to get it, the baby is in a micro-environment of enormous maternal sensory engagement, heat, movement, sound, even mother's vesicular sounds of breathing, the carbon dioxide she breathes. The baby breathes it in, it gets, stimulates the baby's breath. The warmth of the mother's body, the smells of the mother's milk, mother coughing in the middle of the night, baby's brains respond to it. And it's a good thing, because babies are not intended to sleep like an adult, long, hard, and without interruption. Remember, they can't be because what they need to do is every hour and a half, they need to feed on this very calorie-light breast It is calorie-light because, remember, the stomach is undeveloped too. It's not mature yet. So our milk has very little fat, very little protein, really mostly water and more sugar than any other species, because sugar helps the brain grow. It's used up really quickly. Yeah, breast milk is very sweet, isn't it? I remember yeah. tasting some of yeah. my own, and I was mm -hmm. quite surprised. Breast milk changes throughout the day. Am I correct in saying that the rates of mm -hmm. melatonin, which is the sleep hormone, rises in evening milk from the mother That's right. to help the baby sleep that bit more? That's exactly right. And fat is the great amount of fat that the baby gets in the breast milk, actually, is its heaviest or the greatest amount between about 3 in the morning and 7. So the baby's body, like mother's body making milk, is on cycles that are enforced by a variety, not just one, but a variety of hormones. And, of course, if one accepts the fact that, you know, humans have a long-term prehistory beyond history, then biology is really shaping all those characteristics I've mentioned then, phenomenon, that are extremely conservative to change. Just because our culture lets us have all these remarkable shortcuts, you know, taking care of babies, you know, bottles, and we do use other species, we create this thing called formula, and now we have something called a snooze. It, it's like a huge crib that, that vibrates and moves in relationship to the baby, is heating up, it's almost like a substitute for a 
for a mother, but of course it will never be a substitute for the mother. I think there's a lot of those things because I think there's so much misinformation, which is why I wanted to do this, because there's almost like this thing of like your baby should be sleeping through and, you know, women work now. Oh, yes. Well, they worked, they've always worked in the home. There's this expectation, you know, I think that certain cultures have it right. You have a baby right. and everyone looks after you. But I think, you know, certainly in the UK and I think in America, this expectation is you go back to work and you're tired and sleep deprivation is awful and damaging and can take you to the very edge of sanity. But I think, you know, if someone had said to me very early on, there's nothing wrong with your baby or with you. Right, and actually right. all it wants is just to be with you. <laughs> that exactly. would have really helped me. I did luckily learn that quite quickly. And I, and I did things differently. But I, I did have quite a powerful instinct. I mean, when I had my first baby, there was a lot of books about don't feed and have contact, don't have eye contact with your child, which is just actually counterintuitive and I think quite cruel. And I remember trying that for about 20 seconds and then I thought, oh my God, this is wrong. And I just stopped and I threw the, the book, which we won't mention, I just threw it in the bin. I thought this book is just crap. I did have an instinct, but I, I doubted it. But I can understand that because I think a mother can feel very touched out. You do sort of feel completely overwhelmed with the responsibility. Of course. And I think that can be quite difficult. You said that the brain is born at 25%. I, in fact, I remember reading that out of all mammals, mm-hmm. um, our brains are born the most immature. And you said that at yes. a year it doubles. When does it grow to full capacity? Well, believe it or not, until between about 18 and 21. One of the problems with why Westerners are so dissatisfied and so exhausted, aside from the cultural pressures that we all know, as you beautifully described, um, Annalisa, is the way we conceptualize the infant that leads you to have expectations about what they should do. And there's where culture really isn't helpful in Western industrialized societies at all. You beautifully illustrated that human women that become mothers, they, quote, biologically know what to do with their babies if they trust their inclinations and their biological propensities. Because this, like the baby's situation, have evolved very slowly, very carefully over time. And the problem with our cultures and societies today is that it inadvertently disempowers the ability of women to trust that they will know their baby better than anyone. You know, where the baby likes to be held, what little sounds mean, and mothers very quickly, and anyone that is committed to a real primary caregiving situation, even a father can learn these things as well, despite the fact that he can't breastfeed. It's paying attention, it's familiarity, its responsivity to you know actually caring for the baby and responding. Just because we might think it convenient in the kind of world we live that babies ought to, you know, come on, you got to cooperate here and do your job here. This is, you know, 2021, 2022. Uh, we're not little, you know, Australopithecines, uh, early hominins or so. Well, we're not, granted. But we can't just change the nature of our evolutionary prehistory and history. Babies are who they are. They don't sleep through the night. They're not supposed to. That's the good baby. You probably know and probably encountered this, most parents do, that the first question asked after what is the sex of your baby, the first question asked is, oh, are they sleeping through the night? Yep. Because see, this is a cultural ideal, but it has nothing to do with babies. It will never have anything to do with babies. If you really asked first, all right, I got to know who the baby is, just like you might want to know what a kitty cat baby is or what a goat baby is. If they're if a veterinarian or if they're you know, into animal husbandry because their lives depend on it, they will know these things, and they know they can't change them. You know, how long it takes the baby to actually walk or how long it takes the baby to know its species vocalizations. You can't give them a shot, and that's just not going to do it. And so with us in Western industrialized societies, we went on our merry way, actually, I hate to say, probably four, I can think of four of the major figures that laid the foundation for later what was to become how we think we should care for babies and even study them. Um, They were, you know, four white guys that sort of sat on stools some way and without an empirical or any kind of study about babies at all, 
They made decisions about how we need to care for them. And the supposition was that if it's correct for our culture, then it's obviously correct for the baby. But therein was the big error. No. Babies, as you pointed out, they're contact seekers. Their lives depend on it. And their cries indicate the separation of the caregiver to try to retrieve that caregiver on whose body that baby depends. Babies are genetically predisposed to cry for any number of things, but not the least of which is separation from the caregiver. I think sometimes parents can feel judged if the baby cries. And I know that sleep deprivation, I mean, I don't need to tell you, but well, I think I'm right in saying it affects the amygdala of the adult brain first, doesn't it? So you can Mm -hmm. get sort of quite bad depressive thoughts. So you're sleep deprived, your baby's crying. And, you know, the amount of parents who then say, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? It can really hit you if you look at it as somehow the baby is kind of testing you. But really, the baby is not judging you, is it? It's not testing you. All it's saying is, where are you? Which is why when you pick it up on the whole, you know, if it's been fed and changed, it calms down. You said that, you know, the baby is the baby and, you know, we can't expect it to fit in with our cultural expectations but yet people do so what happens when somebody tries to get a baby to sleep through what are we messing with well we are taught to conceptualize babies we're we're taught that that's normative for babies to sleep through the night let's say six to eight months and then they're just trying to take advantage of you keep in mind that nothing will change the fact that a baby has no wants it doesn't want anything in the first phase of its development it wants nothing it only has needs. Right. And the needs are reflected on how the baby responds to the type of care you give. Now, that said, as it's from a species point of view, of course, all babies have little temperaments and personalities and sleep habits and their body formations, their weight, whatever will determine what sleep positions are more comfortable. Just like you and I, when we grow up, we pretty much have the same sleep personality we had when we were babies. Some of us like a lot of clothes. Some of us don't like any clothes or at least something in between. Some of us like to lay on our bellies. Some of us like to lay on their backs. Some like to become starfish. And those things are reflections of the individual personalities, the metabolism and the, whether the baby's body temperature is a little less on average than or a little more. It would regulate its thermal regulation and how much clothes and how many blankets the baby might need, et cetera, et cetera. So we have working here, at least on the infant's perspective, it's biology, of course, that we can't change, as we've been discussing. And then we have out there in the world, not only what expectations their parents have, but the ability of the parents, which will vary in terms of their own resources, to be able to accommodate a human baby in terms of its own biology. And here is where life gets a little imperfect. You raised the issue that 50% of our workforce's women are very much engaged with their professional lives and, and even out of necessity and or personal fulfillment. And that certainly doubles the challenge that human babies relative to other species challenges already. But trying to accommodate the world of work and professionalism alongside the absolutely unchangeable needs of a human infant for pretty much constant contact and proximity. And if a woman can accommodate it, and again, this is a huge social inequality issue, um, many women would love to breastfeed their babies and in this way more easily match the expectable biological experiences of the human infant. But they might be working two jobs or three jobs already trying to keep their family together as a single mother. So you're totally right, Annalise, all of these issues come to the forefront, and especially this horrible concept is, is your baby sleeping through the night, which always was predicated both on convenience. Oh, yeah, that's great. That baby started sleeping at four weeks. Well, I didn't mention this previously. When people tell me that, that their babies are sleeping through the night, I get worried because we know one of the reasons why babies die from sudden infant death syndrome is they sleep too long, too hard, too soon given their own neurological immaturity, the ability to wake to terminate apneas. So while humans have this huge social ideal of, oh, I'm going to get my baby perhaps by sleep training to sleep through the night, 
you know, in some ways, I think, pushing that too far, you really put a baby at risk insofar as its brain is limited mm -hmm. to at what age it can most effectively terminate apneas, that is to say, breathing pauses. And apneas for little babies are perfectly normal. It can be, you know, off on in short, teeny, two, four second little apneas between breaths, perfectly normal. But in some cases, and, and not for any major pathology, those apneas might be a little bit longer. And particularly between about two or four months of age, the brain's doing something very interesting and unique to humans because of language and the ability that we, how we use breath and breathing to integrate with words, sentences, so on and so forth. Mm. We learn how to speech breathe, that is, to control the type of vocalization we want to give when we want to give it. And for the first month of life, before babies are at risk for sudden infant death syndrome, the lower primitive brainstem, it's a little bit more challenged in its breathing control because the reflexive system shifts to the cortex, the higher brain, where babies are gaining control and learning how to control breath specifically in the terms, in terms of vocalizations. Mm -hmm. You might notice when babies are young, they don't have melodies, what you could call a melody of their cry, kind of a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It doesn't vary as much as what when the baby gets between four and six months, or maybe even a little younger, where it's controlling the volume, the pitch, the tempo of it. And the beginning babies are kind of that, as you simply see in cartoons, wah, wah. It's kind of staccato, uh, jumps in sound, but it could be very interconnected. But as babies learn to speech breathe, because it's actually practice for learning how to control um, your words and not to run out of air like that. You know, that would not be a very good way to talk, breathing in between. And what do we do when we switch into speech breathing? It's remarkable. You first think, I want to talk. You take a breath and you know exactly how much to take to get to the end of your sentence so you don't have to stop and take another breath, period, inhalation. And we learn how to measure the amount of air released, the pressure we need to keep behind, we how fast to release the air yeah. <laughs> when we speak. It's amazing. No one ever talks about it, and it's one of the most remarkable achievements in terms of being learning-dependent that humans exhibit. Oh, babies are fantastic, aren't they? They're doing all this. Oh, they're doing all of it. You're right, Annalisa. They're, they're no dummies here. And it's a pretty interesting challenge. And my idea has been that I've published on is that for some babies, sleeping too long in deeper stages of sleep from which they are not biologically designed can push them to their adaptive limits, so to speak, that they're not able to control which they're supposed to on their own now, keep in mind, between about two to four months of age, they're in charge of breaking the apnea. They got to wake, wake mm -hmm. up, eyes open, and the cortex says, okay break that apnea, <sighs> take a breath, and the baby does it. And we think that, at least my colleagues that are supportive of this notion, that one of the vulnerabilities that human infants have that is unique to our species is this thing called sudden infant death syndrome, where allegedly a perfectly healthy baby dies for seemingly no reason in the night. Now, let me point out this, that not that many babies are dying of SIDS anymore. It's really fractions and fractions and fractions, thank goodness. But what turned out to be three of the biggest risk factors for babies dying? You'll never guess. Well, you will, because you probably have heard of some of them. But it was a cultural dismantling of the biology that the babies expect. First, we took breast milk away. No breastfeeding necessary, some people claim. Formula cow's milk is just as good. Well, it wasn't just as good. It turned out to be a significant risk factor, independent for SIDS. Then, to get babies to sleep long and hard, that ideal little baby, through the night, oh, my baby's sleeping through the night already. Well, we turned them on their bellies. That doesn't facilitate many arousals. Babies sleep still and in one position. They don't wake up as much, even without breastfeeding. 
they don't arouse as much and the sleep is more prolonged. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know that we had a good few years ago a really big mm -hmm. campaign, but what is it about sleeping on the stomach that doesn't enable them to arouse? And also my next question is, what is it about formula that impacts on their ability to arouse? Is it because it's very high in protein and they don't need to wake up due to hunger? It kind of sedates the baby in a very unnatural way. It has the baby more able to sleep long and hard. And putting the baby on the belly, the baby's limbs are an incredible protective mechanisms of babies. Even in their own little dreams, they'll they'll jerk, or they might, even when they're learning how to control their muscles, they might want to move their arm or their legs. Like in REM, you, you are a little more restless, you're close to being awake. And that's, that's good, because it causes oxygenation at the same time. So mm -hmm. when you're putting a baby laying on its belly, its arms are flat against a surface, etc., too, you're not letting that baby move in relationship to its own body's desires to move and, and respond. Not to mention that, you know, uh, it prohibits babies, if their neck muscles aren't built enough, to actually protect themselves from nasal obstructions. So what we've found in our research through the years, you mentioned the 40 years, indeed it's been that, we've studied over and over what real, normal, healthy infant sleep looks like, which is mothers sleeping next to their babies, breastfeeding them through the night. We call it breast sleeping. One word, breast sleeping. It's an integrated, normative, biological system. Now, when you start fiddling with that kind of what's called an adaptive package, babies sleeping close, if not right next to their mothers, breast milk, which means breastfeeding, which is the sensory proximity and engagement that is involved in delivering the breast milk. And indeed, some of my colleagues say that the breast becomes the new umbilical cord. And that's exactly mm. true. Fluid going in and out, immunities, so on and so forth, calories. It's a very powerful image. Yes. Then we did the third one that I never got to. We thought, oh, yes, it's in a baby's best interest to promote individualism and autonomy and self-efficacy for them to sleep in a room by themselves. And don't let those little rascals get away from telling you no. They are just trying to manipulate you. No, they're not trying to manipulate you, mom and dad. They are trying to tell you they will love you and want you and they need you. They don't have agendas. Babies do not have agendas. And you read some of these books where babies are presented even before they're born as adversaries. You got to be prepared for these little guys and gals. They're going to do everything they can to make you do their bidding. Well, that's a terrible way. It's getting back to the why industrialized people have the worst time and disappointments with their infants and your children's sleep. Because 
We want it. We've been taught to expect something different that's ideal and good. The good baby phenomenon. It doesn't bother anyone. It just sleeps alone and uninterrupted. The earlier, the better. And in terms of my own research, having compared solitary sleeping babies and how they respond and how deeply they sleep and what their sleep stage looks like compared with the breast sleeping babies, it's like looking at a different species. You get babies that are sleeping alone and particularly formula fed that does promote that deeper uninterrupted sleep. You get the potentiality of that baby spending more time in stage three, four sleep. And we've measured this through brain waves, etc. Uh, when the babies are sleeping alone, when I say stage three, four, it means deep sleep, the sleep that's the hardest to awake from to terminate apneas or breathing pauses. We learn that most mothers and infants spend the greatest amount of time when they're co-sleeping and breast sleeping in lighter stages of sleep. They still go into REM, they still go into stage three, four, but the differences in the minutes they spend in those deeper stages of sleep as compared with lighter stages of sleep is much longer. The good baby, listen, this will kind of be strange to hear. The good baby is the baby that's waking up frequently, letting the mother know what it wants. It's very vigorously adapted. The babies I worry about, and probably needlessly because still there's these risks for SIDS, even where there are many risk factors there, are still very, very low, so keep that in mind. But the babies I worry about are the babies where the parents actually are saying, oh, my baby's only three weeks, and he hardly ever wakes up. I go, oh, gosh, that's not, I don't like that. It was my baby. I certainly would do something to change it. I, you know, have the baby closer, you know, make sure the baby is stimulated, etc. Because that's just not a normative pattern for babies. Granted, most babies have and do live through it, even when they're confronted with it. Human infants are at the same time very, very resilient biologically. But it's hard to hear that, I think, if you've had children and you haven't done that, or you, it, it, I think it's quite hard to hear, but it's about really understanding babies so that you can try and make a decision that's based on your circumstances. I totally agree with you there. I mean, not everybody has the resources to be able to, you know, kind of replicate this seemingly paleolithic way of caring for babies, even though indeed that is where the acquired characteristics of human infants that can never be reversed really did begin to find expression. So I don't want anyone to think that I think someone's a bad parent because what's important to think of, what's the baseline? And that's what biology offers us. It doesn't tell us what we have to do or what we can do, but it gives you an idea what in, in your experiences would be the best you can do for your baby. And that always does begin with breastfeeding. But of course, even that can be subject to resource depletion or resources that are not available. does a baby's sleep cycle? When do they mature or more closely mimic an adult's? The first three to five years are really, you know, not linear. This is what most parents think. They kind of are fooled. They're six-month-old or seven-month-olds. Oh my gosh, he's sleeping. He's, he's, he's sort of been sleeping through the night. And just as soon as you're telling that to a friend, they're not sleeping through the night anymore because their cognition is changing. And your baby's cognition, what things they worry about, the things that they could be scared of seeing a wolf with big teeth on the TV when they're, they're three years old could change that baby's, what should I say, acceptance of sleeping alone. I don't think children are ever happy about sleeping alone. And this push in these books written about, oh, give your baby the gift of being alone. Huh. No, I don't accept that at all. After 30 to 40 years of learning from mothers and learning from babies, what in fact is appropriate. And I, I'm very emotional. And so therefore I Right, the next minute or so, what I'm about to say, uh, I apologize for. But I feel that sleep training, because it is absolutely a cultural invention and because it absolutely is not necessary, it's great for parents, but it has nothing to do with babies. Once again, what's in the best interest of babies? But I understand why people think they have to do it. But in the extreme form, 
And I say this because you see sleep training, people claiming their baby's going to miss out on something. It's not going to get an important social skill if you don't sleep train at four to eight months of age. No, that's not true. And I think it's cruel to do it. I, I honestly do. And I was responsible for doing it myself for 15 minutes. And honestly, when I saw the effect it had on my little, I think he was six or seven months old, you know, it's the only 15 minutes I wish I could take back in my life. I was so angry when I went in and saw only love in his eyes and he's hyperventilating. and It, it was horrible. And that's is, what it feels like to a baby. That's not people just, oh, poo-poo, he'll, he'll get over why would you even do it for the 15 minutes if you knew better? That's what I'm saying. One of the problems I had was about a more grown-up child. I can't remember he was 8, 9 or 10. And the family had had a break-in. And suddenly the little boy wanted to sleep with his mother. And everyone was like, no, you know, he needs to learn to sleep on his own. I don't agree with that. But you said most parents seek to address and meet all their children's needs during the day. Why does it change mm-hmm. at night? What is it about nighttime that suddenly we think, do you know what? Yeah. You're on your own. That just made so much sense to me and also to yeah. the reader. And, you know, I, I also want to say to people, it doesn't last forever. You know, they will not want to sleep with you when they're yes. older. Yeah. I, as a child, fell asleep on the sofa watching the television and I've never had issues with sleep. I was always close to my parents. I slept next to my mum till I was five. Mm-hmm. I've never had an issue. And I, I think I'm quite independent because that is the irony, isn't it? The more we comfort and meet our children's needs, the more independent they become. We're not making a rod for our own back. Scientifically now, that's actually been shown to be true. But Annalisa, I have to say, uh, maybe your experiences uh, with co-sleeping is what makes you able to so beautifully describe those feelings uh, and what is going on. I used to point out exactly that point. Imagine a one-month-old, two-month-old little baby where during the day, from six in the morning on, all love and attention and good care, and then suddenly at six at night or eight at night, whenever it is, all of the things that we have defined as absolutely contributory to healthy emotional, social um, development are off limits and you're not supposed to. What do you think that baby thinks or knows? What? It's probably if he or she could talk, it would be, what's going on? This is horrible. Where is everybody? You know, isn't that, and I always wondered when people were making these recommendations, did they ever think that in one hand they're advocating the things they're very denying the baby from eight to six in the morning and for a baby that's a heck of a lot of time you know because their moment of of reference point is how long they've lived so you know an hour or five hours or eight hours alone is pretty serious in the developmental scheme of the baby so if someone says to you jim when do they start to sleep on their own (laughs) Or sleep through the night. What would you say? (laughs) Well, I don't think there is a particular age in the first five years of life. Probably after five, four, babies are being able to intellectually, cognitively extend that. But I don't give it a month or so because every baby child is totally different. And you can't do that. And that's what is really ruined and taken away so much joy from parents enjoying who their babies are that there are these timetables for everything. And if you don't fit within them, then something's either wrong, you're going to get the product of your human child is going to be deficient. Imagine a doctor saying this to a worried set of parents, you know, a baby's four or five months old, and the only place that baby wants to sleep is with us. Imagine the doctor saying something like, really? My gosh, that's fantastic. You have a baby that really knows what's in its best interest. You should be very <laughs> proud of this this really good baby. You know, and that the reason I make that kind of joke but serious point is how physicians learn. And it isn't their their fault that they're telling parents never to sleep with their baby or oh that baby you shouldn't respond to it or it should be on a schedule. And there are some, not many physicians that would talk about babies being on a schedule. But Knowing the lines of evidence that just because I'm an anthropologist are normal to me 
It's not that I'm smarter than somebody else. It's just I've been exposed to understanding human infants in a very different way. And that knowledge is critical. It isn't just what you see is what you get thinking and what culture directs you to say. You have to make a distinction between the infant and whether these recommendations that were never made from any kind of studies, no studies of biological information or even any psychological studies of babies or their mental health and what causes stronger or less uh, mental resilience. No, these all emerged out of recent Western industrialized abstract social cultural ideologies about the importance of separation. And thus the sleep research community, not surprisingly, when we learned electrophysiology, guess what environment they choose to use to, for the first time in the history of the planet, learn scientifically what constitutes normal human infant sleep. Well, not surprisingly, they took a bottle-fed or formula-fed baby, they put it in a room by itself, hooked it up to the what's called polysomnography, all the little feathery wires, and they recorded the baby sleeping. And of course, all the papers on that research were published, trickled down to the pediatricians, says, here's what a normal, healthy baby does. And then the problem is that the only way, as the parent, you can get the healthy, normal, sleeping baby is to replicate the conditions within which that data was collected, which was the false setting. Mm. And even with my biases toward using biology, the proper setting was to look at a mother sleeping next to her baby and breastfeeding through the night. That is the only environment that will give you what is, in, from a species-wide human perspective, normal, healthy infant sleep. That is an incontestable, irrefutable observation. Do you ever do follow-up on the babies that you've observed? And how does how they slept as a baby impact on how they slept as an adult? Fantastic question. Those kinds of questions need to be answered because even though the American Academy of Pediatrics in my country totally just recommends against any and all forms of bed sharing, but if they had amongst their small insular group a person that had developmental sciences, evolutionary sciences, human biology training specifically on humans, I guarantee you that with that interdisciplinary perspective, they would not be making those recommendations. Even if you thought about the studies that have been done on separation, short-term separation of babies of monkeys and apes, other primates, you would clearly see how would you possibly justify thinking that the primate has neurologically the least mature primate brain of all that has the most period of dependency on the caregiver for the longest period of time, what in the world could you possibly say that would show or would let you say that that baby will benefit from an early separation from its caregiver for a good night's sleep? It's illogical. Well, because their stress hormones increase, don't they? There's, there's, I'm sure oh, you've yes, observed definitely. that in your yeah. experiments and observations. There's stress hormone, cortisol's raised, adrenaline's, because obviously they are distressed and they're scared. I was going to ask you if you ever heard of Wendy Middlemiss's study of sleep training, where she followed babies through a training routine, and she looked at their cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone. She looked at it for the mother and the baby before, during, and after. She found a very interesting thing. The baby's cortisol zipped up completely when the sleep training began, and so did mother's. It was extremely high. After the sleep training, the baby was not responding to eliciting the mother not crying, but its cortisol levels hadn't changed. They were still extremely high, whereas the mother's cortisol levels at the end of the training went down, but the babies stayed the same their baseline levels of the stress hormone. So it might look that the baby's a happy-go-lucky, but there have been changes biologically. Tell me your views on baby monitors, because I've read this and it totally turned on its head how to use a baby monitor. Can you tell our listeners 
what you think we should do with them. Well, I have found in my own family that watching my son and daughter-in-law right next door, where we I have a, now he's two years and six months old, watching how usefully during the day, especially the video monitor can be. Now, my contention early in my career was nothing against the, the monitors, except I think they should be turned around, that the sound of life, of parents, of children, of noises should be pumped into the baby, and that by just putting a receiver in, it's it's non it's not an, a reactive or proactive protected device. When babies hear the sounds of voices, it actually changes their physiology. You know, the little outbursts of a noise in the living room pumped in there. The baby would awaken for a few minutes or so, might cry or might stay awake. It might not. Babies wake up often and go right back to sleep. Surprisingly, as I learned in my research with mother there or mother not there. But what I'm saying is that sensory stimulation, I, I, I'm against the notion of babies need to and should sleep in silence. That isn't the environmental context within which infant sleep evolved. It was around people, always social. And in fact, most of the world, there are very few societies where individuals at some point in their life live and sleep alone. And I don't mean that in a sexual sense. I mean that in a social sense. Mm. That sleep has always been social for human beings. And added protection, added warmth, the collectivity, the emotional meaning to them of being with the other, which is critical for humans and, and good mental health always. So I, I laugh when you say that because I've been talking about turning these amplifiers around and the, and the videos or whatever you know, maybe not the videos in terms of pumping images of what's going on in the living room or dining room, but certainly I do think you can make a valid argument that you're probably doing something more protective, pumping in the noises from the family than simply having the, the monitor amplify the sound. Not a silent dark room. Like I said, you know, when I was a child, I used to fall asleep on the sofa watching the telly and I used to feel really safe because I could hear the telly my family was sitting around me and I did fall asleep I mean if that's changed now I do like sort of quiet <laughs> how did yes. you sleep when you were a baby do you know how you slept when you were a baby well I can tell you one memory I have when I was seven years old oh my mom and dad did the typical pattern like bottle fed I was born in 1948 I know it's a long time ago bottles was the cool thing or formula so it was a mixture of both crib in the other room as soon as possible. But I do remember one event that I can share exactly because I remember so vividly my emotional status where I woke up, something scared me, and I had a lot of brothers and sisters, uh, five to be exact, but I was scared and I went into my mom and dad and said, I'm, I'm scared, could I jump in your bed or something like that? And my mom and dad let me into the bed. I remember that feeling of being in a world of protection that I never, I don't think I've ever experienced since, between my mother and father. It was like paradise for me. I was about seven years old, but I remember how powerful feeling so safe was at that point. Jim, if there's anyone listening to this that is a new parent, is sleep deprived, have we got any safe practical tips that you could give them to help them? Okay. We've been carrying babies, did a big study of at-risk young mothers, and they found that the babies in slings, when a group of at-risk moms were given slings to carry the baby and that the attachment scores, you know, zoomed up just at carrying in contact. So carrying babies, responding to babies right away, and ultimately the love you give them and the degree of love and caring you give them, that's the most important thing of all. And as I said, human babies are incredibly resilient. They can compensate for just about anything if they have that continuing love, attention, and the value, the, the way that parents can make their child feel valued and important is critical, really. Yes, don't be afraid to comfort your baby. You are not making a rod for your own back. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so true. Absolutely. The ability to be there and to pick up your baby. You're never going to spoil a baby. Remember that one line when you're thinking about these kinds of issues, that babies just don't want anything. They don't sit there and think, aha, what am I going to do today to get her to 
you know, pick me up or feed me. Yeah, yeah, I'll pretend I'm really grouchy or blah, blah. They don't, they don't think like that. When we're infants, we are the closest to our genes in terms of the expression of our genes that we will ever be. And I've always thought this to be a really kind of a beautiful thought, that there is a very brief window of time in which there really is a universal human. And that is that first two to four months of life when babies are unculturated. They don't know what's normal. They don't know what's appropriate behavior. And what's so fascinating is that if you took a baby from Dugamdani culture, the Samai culture, Asian culture, Indian culture, Canadian, U.S., Great Britain, every single baby in the world, regardless of culture, if you give them the touch, the contact, proximity that they need, and if possible, breastfeeding, every single baby put on its mother's body and ventrum will respond in exactly the same way. All its systems really change when contact is given, whether a neonate infant, newborn, or a four-month-old baby. All the baby's bodies change in the same direction. And so that's a really critical point to try to recall. Love them, care for them, respond to them, let them know they're valued, give them as much affection as you can and feel comfortable with yourself. I know that's not always possible for people who have been injured themselves emotionally when they're young, but to do the best you can. You're the best ticket that they have, no matter what. Loving them goes a long way. Lovely way to finish, Jim. Thank you. Thanks so much to Professor James McKenna. What a totally fascinating conversation. There were so many things I learnt and took away from that. Do please read up about safe sleeping with your baby. I'll put the link in this episode's description. It will also tell you more about Jim's books and research. However, if you did things differently and you feel a bit crap after listening to this, I do understand. I definitely didn't do everything right and I found parts of this conversation hard to hear. But I think it's really important we start with the science, the biology of what babies need, not want, but need. And from there, we can work out what we can do according to our own individual circumstances. And if you're beyond the baby and young child stage, maybe share this with someone who is pregnant or has a young baby. Also remember, it's never too late to comfort your baby, even if they're a grown up now. The series is produced by Hester Kant, the music is by Toby Dunham, and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Pocket Annalisa. You can read my Ask Annalisa Barbieri column in The Guardian magazine every Saturday. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.